Thank you for being here. I always have the insecurity when I get up on any given Sunday morning to preach, or especially when I go to a place other than the Sunday morning church where I'm going to hold forth and where there's an expected number of people that, that will show up. That when I go to a neutral place like this and I'm announced as a speaker, I'll walk in and nobody will show up. So thank you for being here. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. Um, a, a little preliminary. The first preliminary is just to introduce you to a book that some of you may know. I'll do a couple of quotes probably from it uh, during this lesson. Um, on the assumption that a number of you are interested in this subject of the unity of the body of Christ, one of the better books that has been written of late is by Peter Lightheart. Lightheart's a scholar that some of you may know through his publications. This book is probably a couple of years old now. It's not a brand new book. Uh, 2016 copyright. I'm making about two years old. The End of Protestantism is the title of the book, subtitle, Pursuing Unity in a Fragmented Church. So if, if this is a subject that you, you care to pursue in some of your own reading, uh, th this book by Peter Lightheart is, is really um, a good book, and I'm, I, I recommend it uh, to your reading, your consideration. I'll end today with what I hope are some very practical suggestions for those of us who are really serious about trying to promote the unity of the body of Christ, defined as I did yesterday, not so much about just healing our fragmented wounds within churches of Christ or the American Restoration Movement, but the real body of Christ, the larger body of Christ, the church. Um, I, don't, I will have handouts that I will put in your hands. I never give handouts at the start of a lecture because oh, you read those and just go to sleep for the rest of it. I'll, I'll work up to those and I, I hope to have enough that um, most of you can get one. Anybody that um, cares to have one if we do run out, um, I'll be glad to email you one, um, whatever. Let's pray and let's think together for a bit. Holy God, existing as Father, Son, Spirit, modeling perfect community and perfect oneness. Teach us as people who love you, who pursue you, who seek you, who want to be near your heart and near to one another, to learn the sort of unity that you have shown to us in your own being, and in order to honor the likeness to you that you've created in us. Learn to love each other, be patient with each other, um, instruct each other, learn from one another for the sake of the oneness of your people. Amen. Yesterday, I gave you a quote from Stanley Hauerwas that I would remind you. God's desire <clears throat> is to have a people in the world Pardon me, <clears throat> I get choked up right at the beginning. God's desire is to have a people in the world who refuse to let worldly divisions determine their relation to one another. 
I believe he's correct about the intention of God. God did not create us with the intention that we would be fragmented, divided, warring, competing, rivalrous with one another. In the biblical metanarity, the great God story that is the biblical story, centering as it does on the call of and promise to Abraham, there is a clear and articulated desire to redeem the world from the effects of sin. Uh, what, what was introduced into the world, into the, into the initial paradise condition that God created and that he meant for us to enjoy. One of the cursed effects of sin is certainly division. At the fall... The man and the woman were divided. They were not in paradise. The woman was created as a partner. Um, don't let the word helper deceive you. She's not subservient to to do the man's will. That, that Hebrew word is more often used of Yahweh in the Old Testament than ever of any human being. They, they were created to be partners, helpers to one another. Even in the New Testament, Paul calling us back to that says, submit to one another. And we sometimes miss that in verse 21 in Ephesians 5. But in the original creation, there was no inequality. Man and woman, male and female, created in the image and likeness of God. And it's a result of the fall that the curse, part of the curse was the battle of the sexes is on. And when in connection with the consequences of the fall to the woman, her desire will be unto the man, but he'll rule over her. That's the consequence of the fall. That was not God's ideal. That was not the way God created it to be. There was no subordination. There was equality. There was parity. There was mutual support. The fall creates the competition and divides the man against the woman. And it's not an expression of God's will. It's just a prediction of here's how things are going to turn out. Her desire will be under the man's. Not has nothing to do with sex. Has to do in, in even the Adam and Eve, uh, the Cain and Abel story in chapter four. I think it's verse two that that sin is couching at the door and wants to devour you. Its desire is for you. So. The, the relationship between the man and the woman in the ideal circumstance was not one of division. It was one of parity and equality. The fall creates the competition. The battle of the sexes is on, and not in every culture. There have been a few cultures where women actually have, have been the dominant uh, presence, but generally, but he'll rule over you. You continue reading... And now it becomes racial ethnic division following the flood. When, when there's the second start after, you know, all humans could do was think about different ways to do different varieties of evil and the judgment of the flood comes, the, the race gets a new start. And yet through Adam's three sons and the sort of ethnic divisions that begin to emerge, that become continental and linguistic divisions, uh, you, you now then have division among the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and you have the kind of rivalries that have played 
out in that racial ethnic world. And then you go into chapter 11 and you get the story of Babel and you get a linguistic geographic further muddying of the waters. And among those, those different ethnic divisions, now then the linguistic divisions, and they spread into different parts. And the world has since that time been majoring in new ways to establish divisions and walls and distinctions and with the divisions and the walls and the distinctions to compete and to fight. It should have been apparent to us earlier than it has been at least to some of us who are a little bit thicker like me that one of the elements of redemption would surely involve the dismantling of those divisions and reconciliation among races, among linguistic groups, tribal groups, socioeconomic groups, gender groups would be included in God's purpose in the redemption. But the multiplication of divisions continued as the seed of Abraham spread and now it's fundamentally in the Bible subsumed under the great Jew-Gentile divide. But even within Abraham's posterity, now Israel, the ten tribes to the north, Judah, the two to the south, all those divisions are intended to be addressed through the seed of Abraham who is Christ. And God's desire, Harawas' words again, for a people in the world who refuse to let worldly divisions determine their reaction to one another, that dream of God, that purpose of God to be re, uh, achieved in redemption and reconciliation is yet to be realized. I'm sure it will not be fully realized until the return of Jesus. But if we do believe that it will be realized at the return of Jesus, we ought to be trying to make some contribution to it now because what are we supposed to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, finish it. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You think there's rivalry and competition and division in heaven? You think the Father fights the Son? You think the Son fights the angels? The angels fight one another? Well, maybe before the world began there was a rebellion, but that ended. And God, now let your will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. Let us know the unity and the harmony that exists in your own being. This movement known as the American Restoration Movement or the Campbell Stone Movement is one of many attempts to call the church back to unity. But if we make the unity plea of the Bible, it's not just that people within a given religious tradition unify out of our divisions, but that we learn to live, practice, affirm unity generally. I don't hear much about that unity plea these days, and that's why when Mike asked, what do you want to teach about this year? I said, I want to raise the question, have we forgotten the plea for unity? Are we still even talking about it? Do we think about it? Do we pray about it? Um, and no more than, than Martin Luther at the beginning, what we now know as the Protestant Reformation meant to start the Lutheran church. All of you know Luther said, don't ever call yourselves Lutherans. Luther never meant to leave the church of his day. Uh, Luther wanted there to be a, a renewal within his church. He wanted there to be a deepening of spirituality. He wanted, to be, uh, he wanted there to be the purging 
of, of the corruption, the, 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 the tetzels, the selling of indulgences, the corrupt clergy. He didn't mean for there to be a, pro, a proliferation of bodies. And Hauerwas references his own Methodist background. Methodism as a movement by accident became a church. I fear the same probably happened with the restoration movement that if our forebears were crying out for unity in the larger body of Christ, it turned out that we started a new non-denominational denomination. So I want us to think about unity as a mandate, historically, theologically, and practically. And we pick it up at the point where we left off yesterday. And we begin thinking in terms of a biblical text or two at the very beginning. The first one is going to be so familiar out of the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, the first 11 chapters of John, cover three plus years of Jesus' public ministry. And, and chapters 12 through 20 focus on just one week, the final week of the life of Jesus. And his Last Supper discourse is the final teaching that Jesus is going to leave with the Twelve. And I know I have school teachers in the room other than moi. And when we're moving toward final exam, we, we try to remind our students, now here are the things to focus on. We may pass out a study guide. Uh, you know, here's a reminder. Here are the things that don't be surprised if this is on the final. Here's something... I think Jesus focused on final exam material in his last session in this course called his public ministry, and so it must be really important. And so the text, of course, is out of John 17. He's praying over them now. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given them, so that they may be one, as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me, Father. I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory which you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them and I will make it known so that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. This prayer where Jesus is emphasizing the, the notion of oneness, of unity. The Father and the Logos are not the same person. But the Father and the Logos are in some sense one. They are in some sense in perfect community and harmony, in covenant relationship. And he prays that, yeah, the guys who were with him that night around the table, but he prays that we be one. And if, if that means that we see eye to eye on every point, I guarantee you I can ask 10 questions 
that no two people in this room have exactly the same view on. The question then is not, is Jesus praying for all of us to understand every nuance of theology correctly, even core ideas, and we'll talk about one of those in a minute, Trinity. We don't understand Trinity alike in this room. Some of you may not even be Trinitarian in your view of God. That's, that's not unusual. But if, if the issue is not, you, you all have to understand every cardinal doctrine so that you believe, teach, articulate it in the same way, but that in spite of those differences, we somehow find a way to be one. What is it that he's praying for and how close are we to that and do we really want that and is there a practical way ever to get there? This is a quote from Lightheart out of the book that I referenced. Jesus prayed that his disciples would be united as he is united with his Father. Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus. Each finds a home in the other. Each dwells in the other in love. Jesus prayed that the church would exhibit this kind of unity. Each disciple should exhibit uh, each disciple should hospitably receive every other disciple as the Father receives the Son. Each church should dwell in every other church as the Son dwells in the Father. This is what Jesus wants for His church. It's not what His church is. Well, there's nothing profound in that observation. Lightheart just states it particularly well. That's from page one, by the way, of that book. I want to begin from the John 17 reference and, and Lightheart's comments on it in the introduction to that book to say, I told you yesterday, we're going to talk Trinitarian theology for a few minutes today. I know when you raise the doctrine of Trinity, at least my experience with it growing up was, well, that's just a mystery we don't understand. Let's feel reverent and move on. I think Trinitarian theology is really important. And I think in order for us to understand our identity in Christ and how oneness comes about among those of us who are different in personality, we are different individuals, we have different opinions and views of things, I think maybe we don't understand church very well because we've not reflected carefully, thoughtfully on the notion of Trinity. Serious reflection on the doctrine of the Trinity could, might, I think would, I think it's helped me, understand the notion of what church should be a little bit better. Trinitarian theology is not a theology of three gods. We're not, Christians are not polytheists. Um, my Jewish friends, my Muslim friends have problems with understanding that I affirm monotheism as they affirm monotheism, and yet we don't, we don't parse monotheism in the same way. They understand monotheism to mean mathematical singularity. There is one and only one personality you could truly and authentically be called deity. Not angel, not somehow um, assigned by deity an important role, but, but true God from everlasting to everlasting. Um, the three divine persons that are the Trinity in an Orthodox Christian confession Paul did not see as rebuking, tearing himself away from the monotheism that, he's all, that he had always embraced as a Jew. Trinitarian theology is, is at best hinted at in the Old Testament. It's certainly not clear back there. I don't go into the Old Testament to explain Trinitarian theology. Yes, you can come up with, with references 
pronouns, let us make humans in our image. Well, is that the sort of the plurality of, of, of editorial we-ness, or is that true person? I don't think that becomes clear. I don't think you get an answer to that until you come into the New Testament. But in the New Testament, the answer becomes very clear. And Paul, this monotheist who has been saying, as every devout Jew has so many thousands of times in his life, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord. And in the Jewish translation of the Old Testament, that is the Jewish study Bible, very standard tool used among Jewish people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, He is God alone. Uh, some degree of clarity even that, that, that the word oneness there, which we have tended to hear, a lot of people still hear as mathematical singularity, if I can keep using that term, just the number one, one and not a second or third. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is, is the Lord alone, is God alone. The Jewish monotheism was a response to pagan polytheism where you have a god of the sky and a god of the earth and a god of the water and a god of the air and a god of the frogs and a god of the snakes and a god of the hearth and a god of fertility and a god of... No, the, the notion is that in the Shema that the, the god Yahweh, the god of Israel, he is, he is God over all things. He is God alone. There's not the competing rivalry of the Babylonian creation epic where the gods fight, and as Marduk wins, his Tiamat's part of his carcass becomes the sky, and part of his carcass becomes the earth. There's not the polytheism of, of gendered gods, so that there's sexual reproduction among the gods, and then rival, the rivalry that, that one god rapes the other's wives and daughters, and, and, and one fears that the children that he sired is going to grow up and replace him, so he eats his children, Cronus. No, here, O Israel, our God's not like the pagan gods. Yahweh is God alone. Our God does not fight. Our God is not divided up. Our God, our God is one. In the New Testament, the oneness, the unity, the aloneness of God is expressed as Trinitarian theology, articulated, yes, more clearly in the 4th century in the church council, but I think clearly there in the New Testament. Jesus is baptized at the hands of John. The Word has become flesh. He presents himself to John. John says, this is the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Baptize me. I shouldn't. You should be, do it anyway. He baptizes him. The voice of the Father, unless there's ventriloquism at work. That's my boy. That's my beloved son. Now, that's incarnation language. He's not the son of God from eternity. He was not fathered. He was not sired. He's the eternal Logos, and the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with deity, and the Logos was deity. We'll come back to that. But at the baptism, here is the Logos in flesh being baptized at the hands of John. The voice of the Father says, this is my beloved one, my beloved son. Hear him. And then a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the form of the dove um, coming signifying, the, the, I think, the empowerment, the providing to him of, of supernatural power that, that he didn't have to that point. Jesus comes to self-understanding by the study of Scripture, by listening to what his mother and stepdad have been telling him about the circumstance of his birth and others maybe who could this be. As it becomes clear, as he offers himself to John for baptism, it is now affirmed to him. 
get the idea out of your heads of Jesus, uh, you know, the little boys like Superboy. Anybody remember Superboy comic books, you know? 18 months old, he's crawling on the floor, his ball runs under, rolls under the couch, he takes one leg, picks it up, reach. No, G Jesus was not Superboy. Jesus did not have the self-understanding of himself as Messiah, as a three-year-old, six-year-old, nine-year-old, just, I've got to wait for the clock to tick so I can get my driver's license, so I can present myself. As, no, I think he had to, he, come, he comes to an understanding of that. Well, what about when he's 12 years old? I think he's trying to come to understanding of it. He's asking questions. He's in dialogue. He wants to talk with people against what his mother and Joseph have been saying to him. Could it be true? He's reading. He's thinking. But Father, Son, Spirit. And then that prologue in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. have to have Trinitarian theology for that to be anything other than nonsensical. The Logos, verse 14, who becomes flesh is Jesus. The Logos is with God, and He is God. That He is God, maybe you can understand in, as mathematical singularity. Well, he was, he was there outside space and time in the beginning, and at a certain point He comes into space and time. He was God, and He was with God. Oh, but that requires, that requires at least two now. The word God is not a personal name. The word God is like the word human. It's a class name. The word God signifies that which was here before we got here and is going to be here long after we're gone and forgotten. The word God signifies the, the ultimate level of, of personal being. Of being, not always personal, but the ultimate level of being. God is a family name. And, and the beginning of understanding Trinity for me is understanding that the word God is not a personal name, it's a family name. And so we can speak of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we hear the word God very much like you would hear the word Shelley. Uh, I am Shelley, but I'm, I'm Ruble Shelley. Myra is, is back in Tennessee. Separate person, but we're one, right? Jesus says we are, the Bible says we are. He says, you know, you leave your father and your mother. We did that 53 years ago. We made a commitment to each other, and we have been one. Not one flesh. Translators have that word to try to make sense of it. No, one, and we're one. Not one personality, but one. One in the sense of covenant unity. One in the sense of this bond. This holy bond, not bondage, holy bond, holy commitment that is marriage. The three divine persons in the Trinity, in the beginning, was the Logos. He was with the divine family, and he was a full-fledged member of the divine family. Holy Spirit is a member of that family. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three personalities, one God. One in the same sense that my wife and I and the children born to us are one family. The single divine family. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with the divine family. He was a full-fledged member of the divine family. It's not the oneness of mathematical singularity. It's the oneness of accord, harmony. It's the oneness that we experience in family unity. You've seen this way of trying to represent it in, in, in various 
pieces of literature. The word God is the common term, just as in, if we used it of ourselves, we put the word human in the middle. God is a class category name. Human is a class category name. You are human, you are human, you are human, you are human, I am human. Class category. How many humanities are there? Well, there's black humanity and yellow humanity. No, there's not. There is one humankind, genetically and in all other ways distinctive from other parts of creation. There is one humankind. Of one, God has made all humankind. The word God is a class-inclusive name. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, each is God. Each is a member of the divine family, but the Son isn't the Spirit. The Spirit isn't the Father. The Father isn't the Son. Just as this human category term, white people, black people, red people, think of them as, as ethnic groups, or put individual names in there. This one is not that one. That one is not this one. But all of them are this. This is our category inclusive term. In the body of Christ. Billy is one of those, well, my first cousin. His name's Rubel, but he's... He didn't want to use Ruble. He's Billy. If you don't call me Billy, call me Sonny. Just don't call me Ruble. Just don't call me Sue. Well, Billy's just a run-of-the-mill Caucasian. Inape is a Sioux Indian name. It means brave warrior. Keisha is a student of mine, African-American student in a philosophy class. Chose her name. Caucasian male, African-American female. Native American, Sioux, Indian, male. Caucasians are not. Native Americans, Native Americans have ethnic differences from African Americans. The individuals, certainly each of them is not the other. But suppose they are all children of God. Suppose they are all believers in Christ. Suppose they are people for whom Jesus has prayed this prayer. Is it possible for them to be one? In the body of Christ? Well, of course you say. Now it's a lot harder. Because those are abstractions. We have divisions in, in our culture today as, as sharp as any of us can remember in our lifetimes. Not as sharp as there have been at some points in history. I could name, I could put a name to the diehard Democrat, I can put a name to the diehard Republican, I can put a name to the Independent. In most of our churches, you better not say anything about anything political or persons who occupy high political office because some of these people are not speaking to each other on the subject of politics, and if you were to raise it, they would discount each other and leave angry. All of the things, not just theology now, but whether it's politics or race, ethnicity, or geographic origin, or language that you speak, we have to find some way to live into a relationship that the culture is working against. 
The church fathers called the relationship within the deity that I've illustrated with the triangles in the circle. They used a particular word of it, perichoresis. The word perichoresis is not a word they created. It's a word they chose out of vocabulary. It's a word we don't do well in churches of Christ. It's dancing. Um, it's choreography. In some of our Christian schools, we don't dance, but we do choreography. Um, it is movement in rhythmic harmony. It's giving to and receiving from the other and one another within a larger group. Perichoresis is the rhythmic movement of harmony, the sort of thing that happens when people who do know how to dance, my wife out of a Baptist background knew more about dancing, went to the dances, I still can't, it, you know. The Holy Trinity doesn't trip each other up. The Holy Trinity does not put obstacles in each other's way. The Father does not work against the Spirit. The Spirit is not jealous of the Son. The Son does not withhold from the Spirit. Now I can go back to any of those other triads. And I can talk about race and ethnicity. I can talk about family dynamics. I can talk about social dynamic in the American political scene. Do we ever try to trap each other in speech? Do we ever try to put stumbling blocks in each other's way, trip each other up? Do we ever withhold and deny and hope that what I've withheld will give me advantage over what that person, oh, I hope that person doesn't get the advantage because I like to be one step ahead. The unity that Jesus is attempting to create in the in the human race is not just church fights stop. That'd be a great beginning. And say to the culture, look at what it would be like for people who, because they love Christ, are learning to love each other. We are not going to trip each other up anymore. We're not going to put stumbling blocks in each other's way. So the divine ideal out of... John 17, Father, I want them to be one as we are one, is that we should live in the likeness of God. What does it mean? In Genesis 1.27, let's create them in our image. Let's make them after our likeness. We usually explain that in terms of rationality. That may be, I'm beginning to think, a poor way to begin. I'm not so sure that we are that intellectual, that we're that rational. Uh, we ought to be doing better than we're doing if, if the fundamental thing about being in the image of God is we're smart and we, we think well. Well, okay, maybe it's just part of the ideal. But fundamentally, maybe to be in the image of God is to see that the other is really a part of me and that I am a part of the other. And it's not just that at church... In the human race, God, your will be done on earth as it is being done in heaven. Teach us that we've got to quit tripping one another. Teach us not to work again. Teach us to outgrow our rivalries. Teach us to stop fighting. Lord, give us peace. 
not just the ending of war and an aversion to war, but teach us to love one another in harmony with one another as an orchestra. It wouldn't be an orchestra if all were the same instrument, right? You have all these instruments, and when they're tuning up, how does it sound? It's a cacophony of conflicting noises and sounds as everybody's trying to tune to what? Middle C? But once they're tuned to the same note, and the conductor raises the baton, and they play off that same sheet of music, it can take your breath away. It can transport you. We are still at the cacophony level. If we were tuned to see Christ in the church, if, if in the culture, if, if we could realize our common values, our common humanity, Muslims are not my enemies. I resent the idea that because I'm Christian, I can't have a Muslim friend. I can't eat at a Muslim table. I can't enjoy the, the presence and friendship of a Muslim. In fact, if, if I'm a Christian and I have a Muslim friend or a Buddhist friend or an atheist, the friendship is the first step toward me having any credibility for the faith that I tell them that I think has something to commend itself to you that you should consider. The very notion that in the culture has been abroad so long that because I am Sikh or because I am Buddhist or because I am Muslim, all you Christians I know hate me. The first person who should come to the aid and the defense of the person in a community where there's been the defacing of a synagogue with a swastika or there's been some obscenity perpetrated against a Muslim mosque, ought to be the Christians. We ought to be the ones whose voices are heard to say, this is not representative of what we are calling this community to be as Christians. And these Christians should be voices from Presbyterians and Baptists and Episcopalians. And the Church of Christ ought to join in it. Now, if we can, we ought to lead it. John Barton is in the room, I don't mean to embarrass him, but John created, and, and all of us were grateful for it, a little school that we worked together for several years, and for which partnership I will always be indebted to him, an annual Abrahamic dinner, where equal numbers of Jews, Muslims, Christians met and ate together one year, Muslims might be in charge of the food and we would eat fare that's different than most of us knew. Or one year, a Jewish group, or this year, Christians, pretty bland, you know, we don't have anything terribly distinct. But we understand each other's food, diet. But the thing that we did that, that the food allowed was we looked each other in the eye and I don't hate you. Um, I'm, I, am, I am not a monster, and I do not see you as a monster. Uh, yes, from 9-11 and other settings, I deplore something that people that you deplore equally did that is hateful and evil, and that we both not only lament, but call evil. 
But I'm afraid in, in most towns and cultures and churches and pulpits, the rhetoric that was ramped up made the divide wider and the division deeper to talk about the them, the other versus us. That's a larger cultural issue. Sin is the stumbling and the fumbling and the running from and the kicking against the divine ideal that has broken down just our, the, the oneness of our humanity. I asked yesterday, when is the last time any one of us had someone of a, of a different ethnic group? If you're Caucasian... How many African-American friends do you have? How many of them have eaten in your home over in the last month or six months? Had anybody eat in your home? Well, 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 yeah, others who are like me. I know that. That's natural. It is not evil. Talked about it yesterday. Homogeneity is something that we're all drawn to. We are more comfortable among people who sort of look like us, sound like us, think like us. The conversation's easier and flows. But if the will of God is unity, we have to make some intentional reaches across and we have to communicate with the person that, that we do not know for the sake of saying out of the heart of God my first move toward you will not be a hostile move it will not even be a neutral move it will be it will be a loving move it will be an attempt to, to look you in the eye, to, to understand a bit about your intellect, to, to fathom a little bit of your heart. John, closer than I am, but we both have a mutual friend, Mustafa Akil. And John has many more Muslim friends that he interacts with regularly and recently com completed a degree at a Muslim school to, to try to understand for the sake of, of understanding and, and being part of dialogue with them. But Mustafa has stayed you know, with us in, in our home, eaten at our table. He's, he's in the United States now. He and John have worked together on a book. The, the notion of stepping across these cultural, ethnic, racial, religious lines, the church is not created to be a, a silo insulating itself from society. We're created to be a light into the culture. We have an evangelistic responsibility that Israel had in the Old Testament. And they came to understand God's chosen people as the obligation not to be separate from in the sense of not embracing their values, but to be so separate from they could have no influence on the culture. I'm afraid the, the Christian church has in large measure understood itself along those same lines that our, our obligation to be separate from the world, not to embrace its values and lifestyle. Statistical studies have shown over and over and over again that the people who are Christians for six months, a year, 18 months, if ever in their lives they lead non-Christians to know Jesus, it usually happens in that period in their lives. Why? They still have some networks among people that don't know Jesus. You let them be a church member very long, what happens? They can't lead anybody to Jesus because now their only friends are the ones that are going to church with them and are thinking like them already. 
we're supposed to be salt and light. Can't be salt and light through isolation. In the likeness of God, our oneness with one another, Jesus calls us back at all levels to harmony and loving exchange. We don't do it well among nations. That's called war. We don't do it well in our own country. That's called politics. We struggle in our families. That is that ugly thing called alienation and often divorce. And the church has difficulty too. That is called splits. Yet we must not abandon the ideal that God has taught us to pray for. If we're supposed to pray for it, we ought to believe that it could happen, that we would understand that we are the body of Christ. And that as Christians, the larger body of Christ, I'm not talking about Church of Christ now, the capital C, I'm talking about Church of Christ in the lower sense, the larger body of Christ, the Presbyterian, the Baptist, the community church, the Catholic, the, 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 these people who are attempting moves toward, you say, but I don't believe what they believe. Of course you don't, or you'd be one of them. But the question is, are there people who are seeking God from different beginning places than you know? Yes. Might any of them be pursuing that with a greater diligence and sincerity even than I have from my beginning place? I'm certain I know some who've worked against far greater obstacles than I had to. Do they believe what I believe? Do they wear the name that I wear in terms of tribal identity? No. Do I count them my sister, my brother? Yes, I do. In Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. It's this common commitment to Jesus. And as many of, his, of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed, clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slavery. free. There is no longer male and female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, with the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of you be in agreement. There be no divisions among you. Be united in the same mind, the same purpose. Still a good appeal. Well, is there any strategy that might move us in that direction? Well, let me begin with disclaimers before I offer the positives. I'm not talking about the old failed ecumenical move. I'm not talking about a sort of supra-umbrella organization that, that ties churches together. Well, let's pay our dues and join. That never was unity. Um, it's not an appeal to compromise what I regard as orthodoxy or what you regard as orthodoxy, and that may not be the same or the personal conviction that you have that's different from the person seated immediately beside you or immediately in front or behind of you that you love. It's not an appeal for you to compromise and say, well, I'm just going to abandon... That's, that's, that's a sort of tepid relativism. Hold a conviction that you hold as a conviction, but realize other people are as smart as you are. And it, it's not, as, as one fellow used to say to me, well, that's, that's epistemological agnosticism. <laughs> well, I actually knew what he meant by that. You're saying that we can't understand and know the truth epistemologically and, 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 and you're just agnostic. No, I'm not. I have as deep a conviction as you have. I'm not an epistemological agnostic. I'm trying to live into what the New Testament calls a virtue of humility. I don't think it's a, a spiritual virtue to believe 
I'm right about everything and you couldn't possibly be if you disagree with me about that. I've known a relatively few people, one in particular, whose claim always was, I have never changed my mind on any theological point from the day I became a Christian. You have wasted a lot of time. You haven't thought much about things that matter. Don't compromise your convictions, but realize you're not omniscient. I've had to change my mind about too many things to believe that I'm not going to yet change my mind about some things still. Well, how can you be sure of your salvation? My salvation is not based on the fact that I've got it figured out. I'm not saved because I'm smart. I'm not saved because I'm right. In fact, I can't be saved except that I confess I'm wrong. I'm a sinner. I'm wrong at the deep level of being wrong. I not only can't affirm that I've got the right answer on everything, I don't have it together in terms of my heart and my attitude to be compassionate enough, loving enough, kind enough. It seems that a lot of us don't have any problem admitting, no, morally we're not perfect. You know, we can still lose our temper. We can still be gruff with a kid. We can still be snappy with a wife. God going to save you? Well, of course he is. But he's not going to save me if I'm wrong on something theologically. Really? Do you really believe that grace covers morality and lifestyle, but it doesn't cover intellectual mistakes, errors? I don't know how to live this ideal. So my, one of my disclaimers is I, I don't have it figured out as to all the practicalities. But this I am certain of. I know it's God's will. It's, it's in Scripture. It, it's, it's not a suggestion. It's a requirement. Jesus, if Jesus prayed for it, he's going to have it at the end. I don't want to fight him in the interim. I, I want to try to be moving toward what Jesus is going to have. I know it's God's will. I know it's Christ's goal. I know it's the Spirit's purpose. Therefore, I believe it's our obligation to pursue it. Richard Hayes puts it this way. The God of Israel, the creator of the world, has acted astonishingly to rescue a lost and broken world through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The full scope of that rescue is not yet apparent. But God has created a community of witnesses to this good news, the church. While awaiting the grand conclusion of the story, the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is called to reenact the loving obedience of Jesus Christ and thus to serve as a sign of God's redemptive purposes for the world. We ought to be a people of love and gentleness and humility and kindness. We ought to people, be a people who take the initiative to people who are often left out, who are typically misunderstood because they dress differently, they have an accent, their skin color is different from my skin color, their background, their educational experience is different from mine, they live at a different economic level than I do. My first obligation is to that person more so than the person who is just like me. That's, that's, that's the witness the church is supposed to be part of. So here, here are the affirmations with which I want to close. And I have probably not enough handouts for everybody. And I'll, 
I'm just going to read from the text as I develop each one of these because I've worked to articulate them clearly. Number one, in these, just to read the affirmations first, unity, number one, is a gift from the Holy Spirit. It's not something we attain. We're not told to attain it. We're told to do what? Maintain, keep, preserve. The, the, the unity, we, we are, because of the blood of Christ, united to people that we haven't claimed as family, not even distant cousins. And, and, and we are their kin by the blood of Christ. They have claimed us. Unity is rooted in truth, not compromise. The fundamental truth is the truth of how deep and wide God's love is. It is not hard to please God. That, that is a shocking revelation bordering on, on jaw-dropper to a lot of people. I was taught it was hard to please God. In fact, I was taught you've got about a snowball's chance in hell that you will. Because if in Noah's generation eight people were being saved, do you really think you got a chance? I know this about you and this about you. That is not the God that's been revealed to us in Jesus. Unity is rooted in truth, not compromise. Denominations, tribal groupings are inevitable, not really wrong. I think they're natural. But sectarian narrowness is not. Just, just one quick quote out of the Lightheart book. As Stanley Mead pointed out long ago, denominational churches have an inherent sectarian bias as they try to justify peculiar interpretations and practices as more closely conforming to those of the early church as pictured in the New Testament than the views and politics of their rivals. Sound familiar? Since each Protestant denomination claims to derive its practices from Scripture more consistently and thoroughly than others, we're not the only ones who do that. Each sanctifies its own practices indiscriminately so that all the various elements of doctrine and practice that it, for whatever reason adopted, are treated as if they came from a blueprint revealed in the Word of God. This intensifies conflicts between denominations, and within denominations, everyone believes that the whole truth of God is always at stake. That's what I called yesterday House of Cards theology. Unity is not institutional. It's not what an ecumenical movement or joining a group can do, but it's the encounter of persons as brothers and sisters and unity is necessarily local and personal. It's not going to happen at some grand scale in a, in a nation, uh, nationwide meeting. And every church is just like our church. They're denominational, sectarian, flawed, messy. Oh, I believe the Baptist's wrong about it. I believe the Methodist's wrong about it. Yeah. And they believe we're wrong about some of those same things and other things and we are about some of them, I'm sure, doing the best we can do on any given day. Not any of us is saved in whatever tribal group he is because he's got all the right answer and, his answers and she's doing everything she ought to be doing. Salvation is a gift of God by his grace. And we have to be future-oriented rather than struck in our, stuck in our past traditions and experiences. So here's some suggested practices that I would ask you to think about entertaining quickly. Number one, pray for the unity of the body of Christ. 
If Jesus prayed for the unity of all who would believe on him through the apostles' teaching, well, there would be variations of interpretations of that teaching. How dare we not pray for it as well? Pray for Christians you know from various backgrounds. Pray for the tribes other than your own. And don't pray so much for them to change as you pray for God to teach you to love them. Number two, repent of any tribal elitism that's in your own history and heart. Each of us seeks for and probably finds a denomination or a subgroup within it where she feels more comfortable. That's what denominations are. So your tribe believes the solid biblical view about is X, about the millennium or the Holy Spirit or worship or baptism or female pastors. Excellent if that's really a considered opinion of yours. But please don't think it would be impossible for you to be mistaken. We all have blind spots. And if you're correct on everything, everything, the rest of us are more likely to be able to learn from you as a humble person rather than somebody sitting in judgment on us from a posture of your perfectionism. Or maybe that's the way they see us collectively. Number three, refuse to caricature or make fun of others. Know somebody who's ultra-fundamentalist or super-liberal? Know any jokes about Catholics, Baptists, Presbyterians, Muslims, Buddhists? Can you do a good imitation of a Pentecostal or a health and wealth advocate? It doesn't have to be limited to their religion either. Just the fact of making fun of males or females or blacks or whites or southerners or northerners or gays or lesbians dehumanizes any one of them and drives a wedge between you and them that prejudices them, perhaps forever, against the Savior you say you want them to know. Number four, really make Jesus the center of your thoughts. Don't read the Bible to find a novel argument or to answer somebody else's position that's wrong. Read it to grasp the flow of the great story of redemption that always lands at the feet of Jesus. The more you learn of his lifestyle, his teaching, his way of treating other people, the more the indwelling spirit might imprint that same likeness on you. Jesus saves you, not your scholarship or your ability to play Bible trivia or win arguments with your neighbors or family members. Number five, look for the evidence of God's presence and activity in other people. Buzzards fly over thousands of acres of pasture or cropland only to zero in on a rotting carcass. I can fall into that temptation with groups or individuals. And if you, if you see what appears to be the fruit of the Spirit in somebody's life, Catholic, community church, Baptist, affirm it. Nurture it with everything in you. Don't discourage or alienate somebody by saying, yeah, but don't do the buzzard thing of zeroing in on what you think is wrong in, your, in that person's thinking or that failure in his life. Because you've received grace upon grace, pass it on. Number six, affiliate yourself with a church that exalts Christ by a strong, healthy focus on Scripture, love for Jesus. Brand loyalty used to characterize people in buying cars or appliances. Most people now look for the best value at the best price. There's not much tribal loyalty left in religion either, Baptist, Church of Christ, Catholic. The issue is not the name on the sign, but the consistent call to follow Jesus, love the Word, be good expositors of its contest, uh, contents and let Jesus be at the center of everything. And when you find that church or in that church where you are now, be faithful in supporting it, affirm it, give it your money, give it your time.
Number seven, spend time studying what the Bible says about love and acceptance and reconciliation. Those are doctrines. Just like baptism is a doctrine, the Lord's Supper is a doctrine, evangelism of the lost, compassion for the needy are doctrines, love, acceptance, reconciliation, and unity are doctrines. Love doesn't cancel your obligation to believe and live the truth of the gospel, but your doctrinal soundness is incomplete without a commitment to breaking down the barriers that have worked to fragment God's people. The pursuit of the unity for which Christ prayed begins in loving your neighbor that allows respectful conversation that can lead to either agreement or a grasp at least of the other person's point of view and that they're not stupid that they came to that conclusion. They just had a different starting point and have some different assumptions. Difference is not deviance and diversity is not an alternative word for disunity. Number eight, take some baby steps toward reconciliation and unity. Ultimately, the unity of the church is not achieved by some sort of institutional realignment or by the establishment of a new larger entity into which all of our smaller churches can merge. Unity is first and foremost between two people. When intelligent, sincere people have an honest disagreement, that doesn't deny an orthodox confession of Jesus. Their ability to treat one another as brothers and sisters is a testimony to the power of the gospel to be reconciled to one another. And maybe your baby step is to work with a Nazarene or a Catholic or a Methodist down at a nonprofit homeless shelter or at a crisis pregnancy center rather than having to reinvent the wheel because a denomination's doing that. They started that. We can't help with it and we can't give money to it. Maybe you need to cross a racial ethnic barrier by having a neighbor family in your home for dinner. Find out where a Bible study fellowship or community Bible study groups meeting. Sign up for the next unit of study. Number nine, deep convictions are necessary to unity. There is no authentic unity among people who don't really care about these things beyond, well, that's true for me. That's relativism. And a relativistic view of truth is simply a I don't really care posture. Our diversity of personalities, understandings of Christian doctrine, worship preferences should not divide us into warring tribes. Denominationally, we're more comfortable here. Sectarian, that may, means we're going to war. Even if we grant that denominations form around interpretations of certain primary doctrines, infant baptism by Presbyterians versus adult baptism by Baptists, effusion by Methodists versus immersion by Churches of Christ, surely there's a point at which we've got to stop fracturing, fussing, fighting, and making ourselves a spectacle before unbelievers. The kingdom of God is not one-dimensional, and there are too many evidences in Scripture that wide spans of difference are supposed to enrich us rather than destroy us. The dull homogeneity of enforced agreement is a poor substitute for the rich tapestry of color, ethnicity, gender, and interpretation among Christ followers. And then number 10, please don't be bullied by others' narrowness. If you choose to seek peace and pursue it, somebody's going to criticize you for it. You'll be accused of compromise, although you've not abandoned your distinctive points of view. You'll be called liberal because you've extended your love to somebody with whom you don't agree. Rather than abandon your attempt to live the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, just pray for your critic. And without condescending or quarreling with your critic, draw your circle large enough to include that person and the persons that that critic can't accept. It's God's will to present the broken fragments of the church. 
to his world in visible unity for the sake of answering the prayer of Jesus. He is going to have unity at the end. I do not want to fight his prayer in the meanwhile. Father, as we leave this place, with our differences of point of view and with our differences of ideas and disagreements, even with some of the things that I've said about which I may be wrong, teach us to love each other, teach us to deal with one another respectfully, help us to love the person who is least like us for the sake of being a little bit more like you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for being here.